I think that's it. A Revelation 11. Looks like Revelation 2, but it's actually Revelation 11. Yeah, no, we don't do Roman numerals. Those are confusing. I can't handle it, so... Making our way through the book of Revelation. And we have uh, been looking at the seven trumpets. Uh, six of them have sounded so far. And only one remains, which we will get to at the end of this chapter today. Uh, like the seven seals, there were six seals broken. And then there's like this calm before the last, or this pause before the last was broken. We've had six seals, and chapter 10 is the pause uh, before the final trumpet. Uh, but we're going to see that even in that pause, the events that we're going to uh, read about today with the two witnesses, they're a part of that uh, sixth trumpet uh, being blown. So while it seems like a pause, it's still connected. Uh, in chapter 10 that we looked at, there are some interesting events. We're not going to go over all of them again, but uh, John is given instruction to take a little book that is in the hand of a mighty angel and eat it. And, and John doesn't seem to have any problem with that at all. He's just like, okay. And it, and it seems so weird to us, this idea of devouring a book. Uh, but the reason, at least one of the main reasons, John wasn't caught off guard by this is because there's almost the exact same event that takes place in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, the idea is they are taking in the Word of God to share. Okay, Ezekiel took in the Word of God. He ate the scroll that he might share the Word of God with Israel. Now John is taking in this little book, which is this little book. It is the Word of God that he is taking in to share with the world, right? And so it's a powerful picture. And we understand that to some degree because we know that whenever we've been in a hard place or we need to say a difficult truth to someone we care about, what do we usually end up praying? Or something like, Lord, give me your words. It's the same thing. Give me your word to share. And so John is told to take this book, devour it, because there are still many things that he must prophesy about. Uh, in chapter 11, as we get to it today, we're almost halfway through the tribulation. Uh, as we've talked about before, it's important to understand that Revelation has a, a chronological timeline to it. Some people try and chop it up, cut it up, move chapters around to fit their ideas. From beginning to end, there's a flow. There's a beginning, middle, and end, and it, and it continues in that. So we're about halfway through uh, as we come to chapter 11. And we're going to see that the temple in Jerusalem has been rebuilt, and we're introduced to these two very mysterious guys, uh, the two witnesses. So uh, let's pray one more time, and we will get into chapter 11. Lord Jesus, as always, we want to hear from you. We've come here to meet with you and to hear from your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, apply your word to our lives, that we would be changed, that we'd come to understand you and you're calling upon our lives even more today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So chapter 11, verse 1. So then I was given read like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. 
it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread on the holy city, they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before God, for the, before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, they must be killed in this manner. These have the power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls in the days of the prophecy. And they have the power over waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Now John uh, is told to go and measure the temple. This is the temple on earth. And uh, there have been a few different temples throughout the history of Israel. So first of all, there was the tabernacle. You remember Moses was given instruction after they left Egypt to uh, have the certain artisans and builders of Israel build the tabernacle, which was a portable temple. It was like a huge tent, and it had the Holy of Holies and the same structure that we understand the temple would eventually have, uh, but it would be taken down and moved every time the Israelites moved. So that was the first one. And then there was the Temple of Solomon, which actually King David began the work of it and and wanted to build the temple. And and the Lord told him, you can't. You're a man of war. You've shed blood. Uh, But he goes on to promise David, but but I'm going to make a a temple or a throne for you is the idea and gives him the promise that the Messiah is going to come through his line. And, And I like David's attitude because instead of just being like, oh man, I can't build a temple. He's like, but I can plan it. And he, he like goes to all the work and, and the, the plans and lines everything up and then just basically hands it over to Solomon and goes, there you go, son, have at it. And so the Temple of Solomon was built and uh, it was beautiful and glorious and, and the Lord uh, would dwell there. Uh, but unfortunately, Israel would go off track and they would be God would allow the Babylonians to come in and conquer Israel. They destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. After 70 years of captivity, Israel would come back. It's about the book of Ezra is where we're at. And the temple would be rebuilt. Not to the same glory that the temple of Solomon was, but there would be a temple there in Jerusalem. And they'd begin rebuilding Jerusalem itself. Now, that temple of Ezra, or that takes place being started in the book of Ezra, uh, would be the one that Herod comes along, and he kind of does a big remodel. He doesn't build a new one. Sometimes people will refer to the temple of Herod being the third temple, but actually it was that temple of Ezra that was added onto and, and made something more impressive, if you want to say it like that. And that was the temple that was around when Jesus was in Jerusalem when he was teaching and during his ministry. That was the temple that was there. But you know, about 70 AD, the Romans come in and they absolutely level Jerusalem, including the temple. And it fulfills that prophecy that we looked at in Matthew 24. Remember where Jesus tells them that, you know, not one stone is going to be left on top of another. And they're so blown away. They're like, well, tell us the sign of your coming and of these events that are going to take place. 
Well, that was the fulfillment of at least that part of it. That when they had, they had already pretty much destroyed most of Jerusalem, the temple was allowed to stand in, in one of the towers outside of the temple, but a bunch of Jewish zealots had gone into the temple, and that was kind of like their last holdout. Well, the Romans threw torches into the temple and set it on fire which caused the gold that was outside of the temple to melt down into the walls. And the Roman soldiers went after the gold, which they removed every, to- every stone from on top of each other, right down to the foundation going after that gold. And since then, not one temple has existed in Israel. Um, but we read here, and there are other places in Scripture that tell us that there is yet another temple that will stand on the Temple Mount. Uh, and it's interesting because I've, I've never been to Israel. That's one of my, uh, Candy and I have our you know, bucket list thing that we want to do, go to Israel. But I've talked with a, a lot of people and I've had good friends that have lived in Israel. And, and it's interesting from, from their perspective because I think a lot of times we picture like everyone in Israel, every Jewish person or ever, ever, Jewish descent is just dying for the temple to be rebuilt. That's actually not true. Most people uh, in Israel don't care that it's a thing of history. Oh, it's nice, but it's not necessary, right? Because they're not looking at the old covenant. A lot of people in Israel, just like in the United States, are very secular, right? They don't really have much of a belief structure. They've got a, a history that they're proud of, a connection of, of Israel that they're proud of, but not necessarily a faith that's grounded in the scriptures, right? And those who do, there are some that are still very much Orthodox Jewish people. They do desire to see the temple rebuilt. And, and there is uh, the Temple Institute there in Jerusalem that they have gathered all of these things. In fact, it was just a few years ago, they, uh, their main person was being interviewed. And they said, how many of the articles do you have for the temple. Like if the temple were to be, you know, built tomorrow, how many things could you actually populate within the temple? And they said, all of them. And they went, the menorah? Yeah, the menorah's been built, been done. The holy, or the, the ark of the covenant? And they were like, mm. <laughs> they didn't say yes, but they didn't say no. They're like, yeah, well, maybe, you know. And, and so they are very much pushing, attempting to get the temple rebuilt. Um, And even to the point of training priests to serve in the priesthood of the temple. So it it could happen, it will happen, um, but there's some problems. And there are problems that have existed for a long time. So if you went back a hundred years ago, the problem was that Israel wasn't a nation. And, and that was the thing that commentators at that time were saying, well, the temple can't be rebuilt. Israel doesn't even have a presence there. It, it doesn't belong to them anymore. Well, of course, then they became a nation in a day. And then there was the Six-Day War, and there were all these other events that took place. And though Israel has control over Jerusalem, there's one area that they don't, the Temple Mount. And it's, it's really an interesting story that when they took Jerusalem, they had absolute total victory. And in the very last moment, the general in charge went, you guys can keep the Temple Mount. And even in interviews afterwards, he's like, I don't know why I did that. 
Well, I think it was a part of prophecy being fulfilled. But it was also a big part of people looking at it and going, well, it can't happen. You can't, you can't build the temple again because the Dome of the Rock sits upon the site of the temple. And sure enough, according to, for generations, that's what has believed to be true, is that the Dome of the Rock is actually built, or so they thought, was built directly over where the Holy of Holies stood. How do you build the temple without putting it right where the old Holy of Holies was? You can't just like shift it or move it. And even if you could or wanted to, the tension between Israel and the Muslim countries would not allow it at this point, right? It's intense. So how can the temple be rebuilt? Well, it's interesting. In the 80s, an archaeologist started going through all these old documents and comparing them with Scripture. And this is not a Christian. In fact, he's not even Orthodox Jewish. He's just an archaeologist. And he went through all of these documents that he found, and he came to a conclusion that the Dome of the Rock is not built on the Holy of Holies. In fact, the temple foundation that people believed was the foundation was just only part of it, and the actual temple was about 300 meters north of the Dome of the Rock. Why that's all important is because, as John is told to measure this temple, he's told not to measure the court of the Gentiles. Guess where, if you shift the temple 300 meters to the north, where that puts the Dome of the Rock? Court of the Gentiles. Isn't that crazy? I love how the Lord does stuff, right? Along with that, in the book of Ezekiel, uh, chapter 42, uh, Ezekiel is told to go and measure the temple. And he measures a temple in his vision that doesn't fit any temple that's ever been made. Uh, The measurements aren't right. But in this vision he has, and he measures the temple, there is a wall that sections off the court of the Gentiles. Again, I just love how this all comes together, right? This is the temple that has not been built yet. But make no mistake, it will be. It is going to happen. Um, Now the question is, is are we going to see it in our lifetime? Or will we see it before the rapture? Uh, We could, but I don't think so. Uh, And here's why. And again, if if it happened, suddenly Israel got like the plan submitted and greenlit to go and they were starting tomorrow. I don't think it would change anything. Uh, But here's why I don't think we're going to see the temple rebuilt. Uh, is because whoever is leading the charge on rebuilding the temple is the Antichrist. It identifies him very clearly. Even if there's a group of people who are doing it, he's among that group. Right? I believe that rebuilding the temple is going to be something that happens after the rapture, after the chaos that ensues, after the worldwide earthquake, that this guy, the Antichrist, is going to come on the scene and and rise out of this chaos to be the world leader, and everyone's going to go, wow, this guy can do anything. He's going to seem to bring unity and, and love and understanding, even bringing peace in the Middle East to rebuild the temple. And this is why Israel is going to think he's the Messiah. Now, 
I haven't had this conversation with people, but I know others who have. We're speaking with an Orthodox Jewish person who's excited about the rebuilding of the temple. If you ask them, what will be the sign of the Messiah that you're waiting for? That's the first thing they'll say. He's going to rebuild the temple. It's like the stage is set for this guy. And so, from that chaos, this guy is going to rise up. Now, it seems to switch subjects really quick. So he's told to measure the temple, and all of a sudden he switches to talking about these two witnesses. Um, But they are very much connected. The importance of the temple, the things that will take place there, the rise of the Antichrist, all of this, it's absolutely intertwined. Now, these two witnesses, we're told here in Revelation that these are the two olive trees and the candlesticks. I might want to jot this down if you're taking notes. That's from Zechariah chapter 4. And again, this is a prophecy that specifically is pointing to these two guys. And in this, pro- in this vision, there are olive trees and oils flowing from the trees directly down into the candlesticks that are lit. And it's this whole picture of these two witnesses being continually empowered by the Holy Spirit like no one else ever has that they're going to be on fire for the Lord, right? Now, we've seen already that in these last days, the gospel is going to be preached in a, in a couple powerful ways. Uh, we've already talked about the 144,000, right? These uh, Jewish believers, they get saved after the rapture. And there's 12,000 from each tribe, 144,000 in all. And they are unstoppable superhero like Billy Graham's, right? They are preaching the gospel everywhere they go, and they cannot be stopped. When we see them at the end or toward the end of Revelation, there's still 144,000. Not one of them has been lost, right? So these guys are already, they're all over the place from what it seems. Uh, They're being used worldwide, but there's 144,000 of them. We're going to see... in the next uh, few chapters, that there is an angel that is flying in the midst of heaven around the earth preaching the everlasting gospel to mankind. So like if you didn't like the 144,000 and the message they had, you want to turn the channel to another preacher, you've got this angel. (laughs) Again, supernatural events have become natural, normal in this day. And this angel is preaching the gospel. Everywhere he goes. Again, on a worldwide basis. And then you've got these two witnesses. Their main focus is Israel. In fact, they are based in Jerusalem. And so we're going to see, even as we get into the study today, into this chapter, the focus is so far in Revelation has been global, right? Everything that happens, happens for the whole earth. Now, these two guys are still going to affect the whole earth. And the whole earth will know about them. But their focus is on Israel in Jerusalem, right? So we're going to see the focus come in and be very much on Israel at this point. Now, the big question, and I've got the same questions, who are these guys? Where do they come from? What's their history? You know, they just seem to randomly pop up, these two powerful witnesses. Well, there's a lot of opinions, a lot of ideas that that people have, Um, Some people say, well, this is uh, Elijah and Moses. Or others will say Elijah and Enoch. 
Well, the reason for those three are probably the biggest picks um, is that Elijah never saw death, right? He was taken up into heaven in a chariot. Same with Enoch. He walked with the Lord and was no more, right? He just disappeared. Kind of an early rapture for that guy. Uh, Moses, his body was never recovered or found. And, and it talks about that in the book of Jude, that, that the angel, the archangel and Satan contended for the body of, of Moses. Um, and so again, you know, is it one of these guys? Is it two of these guys? Maybe. Uh, I don't know. I don't think so. And probably my biggest reason is, is uh, John the Baptist. John the Baptist fulfilled prophecy by his life, by his message, uh, and the prophecy uh, specifically for John the Baptist, but people also point to that concerning these witnesses, is in Malachi 4. It talks about that Elijah must come again before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Which is a reference, the great and dreadful day of the Lord is re- a reference to the tribulation. Okay, And so that's why people point to this. and they're like, One of these guys is definitely Elijah. I don't know. I don't think so, because John the Baptist was also called Elijah. And even Jesus told the disciples, hey, if you can handle it, I'm telling you, Elijah has come, and was referring to John the Baptist. But John the Baptist didn't know that. You know, the, the Pharisees asked him, are you uh, the witness? Are you, John the, or are you uh, Elijah? And he goes, no, I'm not. Well, because it's not the idea of like the person Elijah being tucked away in heaven and then brought back at a key moment or brought back twice at key moments. It's the power, the ministry, the anointing is so much like Elijah. It's the same type of things. And here we see an incredible parallel of not only Elijah, but also of Moses. The things that God used Moses to do in Egypt, turning the blood or turning water into blood, and the different plagues. And then these guys are just given like, you know, a blank check, right? They can call down as many plagues as often as they want of any type. That's a lot. That's intense. I mean, Moses was told, just tell them this is going to happen and I'm going to do it. It's kind of how the Lord did it in Egypt. But with these guys, they're just like, whatever you need to do. You want to stop it from raining the entire time? Do it. You want to turn water into blood? And keep in mind that one-third of the world's fresh water has already been poisoned. Water's in high demand during the, during the tribulation. Drinkable water. And again, we can only guess at the chaos of, of the worldwide earthquake and what that would do to different uh, reservoirs and whatnot. Uh, but these guys can, can turn water into blood. And I believe that that's what this is a reference for. Now, it could be Moses and Elijah or Moses and Enoch, but I think this is referring to the same type of ministry, the same type of power. These guys are going to walk with that same authority, in fact, a greater authority than Moses had uh, while he was in Egypt, greater authority than Elijah had. And uh, yeah, like I said, there's a lot of similarities there. All right, verse 7. 
says, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the, peop- from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their bodies three and a half days and not allow their bodies to be put into the graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. Make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood to their feet and great fear fell on all those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended into heaven in a cloud. And their enemies saw them. In that same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. And in in the earthquake 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming. As I said, the, the focus has been uh, of Revelation has been global so far, but now we see it focusing very much on Jerusalem and, as it is the base of these two witnesses. And these are guys, uh, again, kind of keep in mind the timing. So the rapture takes place, worldwide earthquake, absolute chaos. The Antichrist rises up, seems to just be the best guy in the world. Everyone loves this guy. He brings peace in the Middle East. They rebuild the temple. Israel is in love with him. And these two witnesses are standing against him every step of the way. Well, the rest of the world is like, no, this is the leader we've been waiting for. He's such a kind person, and he's not out for himself, and he's the best ever. These two witnesses have been in Jerusalem letting everyone know this guy is evil. This is the Antichrist. And the more they've done it, the more people have tried to shut them up and tried to make them stop. Jerusalem is referred to here as Sodom and Egypt. The idea of that is that Jerusalem has become a city of great sin and decadence. And again, these witnesses have stood against that as well. And we've seen, I mean, we've kind of always known it, but I think over the last year, maybe two, we've seen people absolutely freak out when they hear what they don't want to hear. We've got something going on, and it's not just in the United States. It's on a worldwide level. The people, they just, I just won't hear it. They either, they, they freak out, and, and a discussion turns into an absolute conflict, or they just, if it's possible, they cancel you. They, you know, send people against you. They, they shut down your YouTube. They shut down whatever. Because your message just shouldn't be heard, right? It's going to be 100 times worse for these guys. That, that cancel culture that we're in right now, it's just the beginning. It's just the start. 
And like I said, it's spreading worldwide. It's starting to go out everywhere. And, and it's going to intensify far more. When these guys are there speaking the truth, and I think it's important to know that though these guys are witnesses and prophets and they have so much power, they are speaking on behalf of Jesus Christ. They're going to be speaking truth and love and hope. They're going to be speaking repentance from sin and eternity in Jesus Christ. And that message is going to be hated. Again, keep in mind of of what's already taken place. The world has seen Jesus come on the clouds for his church. They have attempted to hide themselves from that great sign in heaven that we see in Revelation chapter 6 and Matthew 24. And so there's already this dividing line of that Jesus is the worst and living for ourselves is the best. And these guys are going to stand up and go, no, living for yourselves is, is death. Living for Christ is life. And so people are going to be against them. These guys are the problem. Cancel them, remove them, even put them to death. But we see that it doesn't go so well for those who try. That those who come against them to hurt them are devoured with fire. And again, I don't know exactly what that means, but it does not sound good. That fire proceeds from their mouth. Now, is that them just speaking the word of God and these people ignite? Is it actually like a flamethrower? I have no idea. But it isn't good for the person on the other end. And to anyone who would oppose them, to anyone who would come after them, it says that is how they must die. I don't know that either. Why must they die that way? Well, it makes a pretty big statement, if nothing else. I think it brings a lot of discouragement to anyone who is next in line to oppose them, right? <laughs> no, no, I'm going to gotta gather my thoughts a little bit. I'll be back later. <laughs> but when their testimony is finished, not because they were canceled, not because people came against them, not because their Facebook and YouTube page got removed, their work was done. The message has been delivered. Their choice has been given to all the world. And it says that everybody is paying attention to these guys. The world is watching. Every tribe, every tongue, every language. Now again, we take that for granted. But 60 years ago, that wasn't possible. That's not very long. For something that was written 2,000 years ago. The idea that the entire world could watch something. Easy. On multiple platforms right? Not just one, not just the TV, but all over the place, media and social media. And you can bet, again, that they are all very much against these guys. But when their testimony has finished, their job is done, they have fulfilled their calling, then the devil makes war against them. Again, that's very intense wording that's used there. He doesn't just come against them to attack them. He doesn't just come against them in a battle. He makes war against them. In other words, he goes at them full tilt for as long as it takes in this violent conflict until they are dead. So again, we get the wrong idea if we just think that the devil shows up in one way or another and kills these guys like that. It is like this ongoing war that takes place in Jerusalem against two men, and it doesn't just end right away. It goes on and on until they finally die. Again, the hatred for the world, we see 
how intense it is. For three and a half days, that they will not bury these guys. Now, I don't think we understand it, but in the ancient world, in, in the mindset of a Jewish person in Israel, and even in the Roman mindset, the greatest way you could dishonor someone was to not bury them. This is why Rome, when a city or a town rebelled, would round everyone up and then line the road into that town with crosses with bodies upon them and never bury them. Jesus being taken down from the cross and buried was a rarity. Usually they would leave them until they fell off. Gruesome. And so that's what's taking place here. The whole world is going, no, don't bury those guys. They're not worthy of burial. Leave them in the streets. And then they continue to watch. That's the other part. It's just like, man, the hatred is intense. Because it isn't like, hey, they're dead. Turn off the TV. Turn off the social media. You never have to worry about these guys again. They become the source of mockery. In fact, I think it is an absolute mockery against the Lord himself. Because not only do they continue to watch their bodies in the streets, but they begin to exchange gifts and make merry because they're dead. Right now, the whole world, in one way or another, at least acknowledges the birth of Christ once a year. And far more non-believers than believers celebrate his birth by giving gifts. Whether they want to admit that or not, it's what they're doing. This is going to be a direct mockery of that. Going... Hey, these guys were preaching Jesus. Instead of celebrating that guy's birthday, let's celebrate his witness's death. And they make merry. And they exchange gifts. Brutal. Brutal. Happy dead witnesses day. Here's a gift. It's so bizarre. And, and again, they're watching them. They've got you know, cameras trained on these guys. They're you know, taking Snapchats of them. Are they still dead? Yep, they're still dead. Ha, 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 ha. Until... They're not. <laughs> and I would love to see this moment. This, I mean, I don't want to be around the tribulation. <laughs> Wouldn't be worth it to stick around for this part. But like, while we're in heaven watching what's going down, I'm looking forward to watching this moment right here. These guys are mocking, exchanging gifts, doing all this stuff. And all of a sudden, these guys just stand up. Yeah, yeah I love it. I absolutely love it. Verse 11 says that now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood to their feet, and great fear fell upon all who saw them. I bet it does. <laughs> and how many people saw them? Everybody. The whole world, again, is watching. These guys stand up to their feet, and all the laughing and all the mocking stops, and great fear falls upon all. And then verse 12 says, And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And I like that. It's, it's such a subtle little thing. But it's the idea of like, this earth is not worthy of you. Time to come up here. Right? And they ascend into heaven in a cloud, and their enemies again saw them. Man, not only are they resurrected, brought back to life, but they ascend to heaven in a cloud. Uh, and again, the whole world sees all this going on. 
Immediately after, there's a huge earthquake that takes place. Uh, and it's interesting because, again, John wouldn't have known this. The people in that day didn't know this. But one of the world's most violent fault lines runs right through Israel. And when I say violent, I don't mean active. It's got tons of pressure built up underneath it and is ready to snap, right? And this huge earthquake takes place. And a tenth of the city falls. 7,000 people die. Um, intense. And again, it's, we can't look at these events individually because we'll miss the point. You've got to get the time flow of how it's going down, right? So you've got these guys witnessing for years, sharing Jesus, this war that takes place where the enemy comes against them until they die, and the mockery that takes place, and then they're risen, ascended, bang, in an earthquake. They're pretty sure this is about judgment. Right? So it isn't just this random event that takes place of an earthquake happening and people dying within Jerusalem. And again, this doesn't speak on a worldwide level. This is about Jerusalem. And, and this is important. Verse 13 says, And the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The rest of who? Not the rest of the world. The rest of those in Jerusalem. See, Jerusalem has been on board with the Antichrist this whole time. They have been against these two witnesses from the beginning. But something happens here. And it doesn't mean they got saved. It doesn't mean that those in Jerusalem get saved. But it's just a spark that maybe they're wrong. That maybe they need to give glory to the God of heaven again. And this spark that we see right here, and it's a real subtle little thing, but it's going to be a raging fire in chapter 12. But I think this is where it begins. This is where they get that first little like, we've been wrong. And I was trying to kind of think about that, you know, in my own life, that there are those times where you get kind of caught up in a group mentality. You get that, you know, and it's not a good thing, but it happens, and we've all been there before, and maybe it's gossip, or maybe it's a bad attitude, or whatever. You just get this group mentality, and then something takes place where afterwards you go, now that was wrong. Man, I shouldn't have been, I shouldn't have been doing that. I think that's what's happening with Israel right here. Man, they've gotten caught up in this whole one world, one government leader, you know, the Antichrist, how great he is in the temple and all that stuff. And this is the moment where they step back and go, man, we shouldn't have been involved in that. We need to give glory to the God of heaven like we used to. And again, it's just a small spark, but it's the beginning. Now, it says that uh, the second woe has passed. If you remember, and it's a little bit confusing because we got seven trumpets, but the last three are designated with the word woe, which woe isn't like the woe we think of, like woe. It's, it literally means dread and despair. It's a really heavy term. And so the fifth trumpet is the first woe. The sixth trumpet is the second woe. And, and while we've had this pause, while we've kind of broken from the action of the, the sounding of the trumpets, we're told that really these guys finishing their work, their ministry coming to this conclusion is a part of that second woe. 
And then until, so it's not their whole ministry, it's just the finality of it. But that's part of the second woe passing. And now we move on to the last trumpet. Verse 15. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on the thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, O God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry with you, and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead, excuse me, and the time of the dead that they should be judged. And that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. And then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in, the temp- in his temple. And there was lightnings and noisings, noises and thunderings, an earthquake and great hail. Um, yeah, intense. The seventh trumpet is blown. And things change in heaven. And again, it's important to keep in mind as we read through and study through Revelation that there is the view that we see on earth, what's taking place, physical events or even supernatural events happening on earth. But then there's the view in heaven of what's taking place there. We've switched back and forth. And so when the seventh trumpet is blown, the major change takes place in heaven. But earth does get, is affected by it as well although are probably completely unaware of what's happened in heaven. Now, one of the things when it comes to the seventh trumpet, uh, it's a question and it's easily uh, misunderstood. A lot of people don't see how this fits together. Um, the seventh trumpet is not the trumpet of the rapture. And, and it's confusing because it talks about that at the rapture, there's going to be a trumpet and it will rise to meet the Lord in the air. And, and it even talks about the last trumpet, yeah, right? Well, it causes confusion because we go, well, isn't this the last trumpet? It is the last of the trumpets of judgment, but it's not the only trumpet to be blown. And I'll explain what I mean. So uh, first of all, let me read the scriptures that uh, people usually look to. You don't have to turn there. You can jot them down if you want. 1 Corinthians 15, 52 says, At the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound, and the dead in, uh, will be risen incorruptible, and we shall be changed. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 has a similar verse. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. What we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 11 is not the trumpet of God. It is the trumpet of an angel. And it has a very different purpose than the trumpet of God. When the angels blow these trumpets, it is to bring wrath and judgment. But the trumpet of God is a trumpet of victory. And, and we see it a couple times in the Old Testament. And, and really, 
Well, first of all, the, the two places that we see it, uh, Exodus chapter 19 and 20, where God has brought all of the people of Israel to the mountain. And he speaks from the mountain as a trumpet, so loud that it fills the people with terror, right? It's still a trumpet of victory because he's delivered his people out of Egypt and he's about to give them the law and the new covenant that they're under, right? But we also see that the Lord's voice is, is called the trumpet in several places, including chapter 1 of Revelation, when Jesus speaks to John and he says that it was as a trumpet. So the last trumpet of God is very important that we understand. That's what we see with the rapture of the church. People will look at it and say, well, in verse 15, it sounds like, you know, the whole church is, comes up at that point because it says the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and, and he shall reign forever. It kind of seems like this culminations of things that have just happened. But it's a little bit clearer in the original language. The way this is worded is saying that the kingdoms of the world are becoming the kingdoms of our God. Or more, it might be more of the idea of us saying, it's so sure to happen, we're just going to say it's already happened. It's so sure it's done. And that's a concept we see several times in Scripture, right? We're told that we are seated in the heavenlies, but we're not yet. But your place is so sure there, it's like you're already there in God's mind. You are already seated in the heavenlies with him, right? And there are, there are other places. But this is that same idea. Again, it's more clear in the original language, but the idea is, man, it is so sure that it is done. And it makes sense, again, in the context as we look at the other events that are taking place. Verse 19 says, The temple of God was opened in heaven, and, it, and the ark of his covenant was seen. Well, this is a, if you've been tracking... We've been seeing the throne room of God, and I've talked about how the throne room of God is the temple. That if you look at the temple that the instructions that were given to Moses, that every temple would be modeled after, God tells him that he has to be very careful to do everything just as he's instructed, because that temple on earth is a picture of God's throne room, the temple in heaven. So his throne room and the temple are the same. We're like, wait a second. Hasn't the temple been open? I mean, that's where we've been. That's where we've been seeing so, all of these things taking place in heaven. We've been in God's throne room, the temple. So why does it say that it's now open? Well, we've had the inside view. But now it's opened up to prepare for the judgment of all mankind. That to those on the outside or to even those in heaven, they understand what this means. That... God's judgment, the kingdoms of the earth are so surely his kingdoms, the judgment has finally come. And that the temple is now open. And the result is lightning, noises, thunderings, earthquakes, and great hail, which I believe are the effects happening on earth. That this, this event of God's throne room the temple itself in heaven being opened wide to prepare for all mankind to be judged in that place. Man, it shakes the earth. 
Now, looking at all this, again, like with other chapters, it's kind of hard to go, okay, what's my application in this? How am I going to live these things out this week? Well, while we don't compare, certainly, to the witnesses that we've read about today, we are His witnesses upon the earth right now. And, and maybe we only get one thousandth of a, a percent of the type of ministry that these guys will have, but it's still the ministry that we're given to be his witnesses. And again, in a culture that would love to cancel that message. In fact, while we haven't seen any major persecution, and I, well, the little bit that we face, we kind of go, oh, we're being persecuted, and we get all, you know, grumpy about it, and there's reasons to do that, but certainly we haven't faced a type of persecution that others in the world face, even today. We're going to see more. Because while this cancel culture has been going after history and monuments and politicians, I think the church is next. Because they can get politicians to bend. They can get YouTube channels canceled. The church will be immovable. And they will hate that. It doesn't change our message. And it doesn't change that we're representing Jesus Christ to this world, including that cancel culture. To show them the love of Christ, but to be immovable on the truth of the Word of God. We should not be surprised when we face ever-increasing persecution. But even in the midst of all of that, we are going to get to see souls saved. We're going to get to see people added to the kingdom of heaven. And I'll tell you what, you know, if you haven't been there when somebody gives their life to Jesus, it is worth every difficulty it takes to get to that point. It is. I mean, I've had people that have just absolutely confronted and fought, just tooth and nail and argued and belittled for years, and then that person gets saved. And I'm like, worth it all. <laughs> worth it all. You know, even at times I'm like, that person will never get saved. Right? <laughs> My own bad attitude. You know, I know that you guys are super spiritual, and oh, they'll definitely get saved. Yeah. I'm like, nope. Not them. And then they get saved, and I'm like, oh, I was wrong. <laughs> but it's worth it all. It's worth it all. And, and so even when conflict comes, I think that's the right attitude for us to have. Is like, go ahead, bring that conflict. I, I'm not going to run from it. I'm not going to back down from it. I'm not going to change my message. Because it isn't my message. It's his message. And, and I want to give it out to anybody who's hungry. I'm going to give it out to anybody that will listen. Because it's some of them will hear and believe. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the power of your word, for the encouragement of these two witnesses who will be unyielding in the message you give them to speak. God, may we also be those that speak the truth in love, that deliver the love of Jesus Christ to this lost world, and God, that you would fill us up with the Holy Spirit, empower us, to share your good news with those people that are in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.